In the beginning there was only Nun, the primal ocean of chaos. From these waters came Ra, the sun god, who gave birth to Shu, the god of air, and Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. Tefnut gave birth to Geb, uh, the earth god, and Nut, the sky goddess, and so the physical universe was created. Against Ra's orders, Geb and Nut married. Ra was incensed and decreed Nut could not give birth in any month of any year. Uh, Tut, the god of learning, decided to help her and gambling with the moon for extra light was able to add five extra days to the 360-day calendar. On those five days, Nut gave birth to Osiris, the lord of the afterlife, Horus, Set, the god of chaos, Isis, the goddess of magic, and Nephthys, who seduced her brother Osiris to produce Anubis, the jackal god of embalming. Men were created from Ra's tears, different nations from different tears. When they rebelled and were ungrateful, Ra and the council of gods decided to destroy them. So Ra created Sekhmet, the lion-headed goddess of war to do the job. She slaughtered all but a few humans, at which point Ra relented and tricked her into stopping. So went the creation stories of the gods of Egypt. They were the pictures, the myths that filled the heads of God's people Israel as they lived and laboured in Egypt. That informed Israel about how the world was and who they were as they lived in it stories of chaos and rage and selfishness, tricks and war and anger of many gods rather than one, gods who were born and who represented the sun and the moon and the oceans and the rivers and the land rather than a god who made it all, stories about gods who made mistakes, who made decisions without purpose or wisdom or planning, gods who were callous and brutal and vindictive. And what, then, what that meant was that life for humans was about trying to please all of these gods, trying to trick them or force them into giving you a good harvest or a safe birth or success at war or protection from drought or flood, never sure whether you were sacrificing to the right god or whether a more powerful god might come along and change the whole plan. These were the creation myths that might have been influencing Israel back then. But we have creation myths that are just as significant for us, manipulating us to think and act in certain ways, telling us what our purpose is and the purpose of the world, telling us what the world is like and where it's headed. The universe began with a big bang. It'll end with a giant implosion out of which a new universe might form. There's no end, there's no beginning, there's just a continuous cycle There's no progression, the world is headed nowhere. And it's all the result of chance, of physics, matter, planets, stars and energy. Even life itself. Give it long enough and those atoms become molecules which become amino acids, which become proteins, which become DNA, which become life. Unicellular life becomes multicellular 
organisms, which eventually become self-aware thinking life forms. There's no purpose, there's no design, there's no plan, there's no right and wrong, the fittest survive, the rest die. That's the myth and so that means your purpose in life is to survive, find the best genetic material in a partner, reproduce and then pass your genes on to the next generation and die. Any notions of self-perception, a soul, beauty, love, compassion, trust, loyalty, honesty are nothing more than chemical reactions in your brain Right and wrong, good and evil, all depend on your point of view. Everyone's sense of morality or basic human rights is nothing other than an evolutionary adaptation that makes you better able to survive. And when you die, that's the end. It's all just part of the cycle. Your body is eaten by worms and feeds the next generation. Your energy spreads out into the universe, gradually increasing its entropy as the universe slowly runs down. That's the creation myth that our godless society bombards you with. The media, our schools, our universities, science, TV, newspapers. And so we need to hear some truth. Israel needed to hear some truth. Truth about God, the universe and ourselves. Truth about what God is like, what his world is like and the part we play in it. Truth that answers the big questions. Why am I here? What is eternity about? Who is God and how can I know him? They're the questions that we get answered when we turn to Genesis 1. Answers to the questions about the God who made the world, the world that God made and the people God made. So firstly, the God who made the world. There in the very first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, God. The subject of the book, the subject of the whole universe, God himself. He's eternal. He always was. He had no beginning, unlike the false gods of the nations. God is. The only being who exists outside of time and space but he didn't stay outside time and space, he entered it, he created it, Uh, he created time and matter and energy. It all came into existence at the command of his word, he spoke it all into being from nothing. Now at this point I want to stop and, and have a think about the style of literature that we have here in Genesis 1. You don't have to look at it too deeply and I love the way Laurie read it and I hope you appreciated it. Uh, you don't have to look at it too deeply to realise that there is something unusual about it. Uh, The the thing that you notice, hopefully, is the structure, the repetition. If it's not poetry, it's something on that line. Maybe song lyrics or a rap. There are regular sections. Each one begins and ends the same. And God said, and there was evening and there was morning, There is a rhythm. Now it's one thing to notice that, it's another thing to work out its purpose, why, what's the point of describing things in that way. And here's what I think, that the rhythm and the pattern and the structure 
reflect the rhythm and the pattern and the structure of God's world. The design and the order, the intelligence of God are reflected in the rhythm and the pattern of what we read. When God creates, there is nothing random or confused or half-baked about it. It's considered. It's intricately planned. He brings wisdom and intelligence and detail and harmony to the task. But not just that, God enjoys what he's made. From day three onwards, he looks at the things he's made and he declares it good. Genesis 1 describes a God who's completely different from the pagan gods of the nations or even different from what the world today says about God. He's one God, not many. There is no confusion about which God. He's eternal. He's infinitely powerful. He's wise and ordered. He's not fickle. He's always faithful to what he says and to who he is and he enjoys what he's made so it means that this physical world is good. And that's saying something quite different from lots of religions where the, where the goal is to become increasingly spiritual and ultimately to leave behind the physical world. That's not what we read here. And since God enjoys his creation, including people, this is teaching us there is the possibility that we can please him. We can cause him enjoyment rather than humans constantly living in the fear of wrath, of being nothing more than a splinter in God's finger. This gives us the hint that this God can be known. And that must have been something revolutionary for the Egyptians of Israel's time, but more of that in the weeks to come about how God can be known. Well, that's something about the God who made the world. What about the world God made? Well, the big picture is that the world begins in disorder and it finishes in order. And so verse 2 tells us that the earth was formless and empty. It's shapeless and it's bare. Imagine a blank canvas. And then as we read through, God begins to work on the shape. So day one, he speaks and light and dark come into being. One he calls day, the other he calls night. Day one ends, evening and morning. God speaks again and sky and water are separated. Uh, Waters above from waters below and day two ends, evening and morning. Uh, Day three, more work at tracing out the form, adding the shape. He speaks and the land separates from the water and mountains rise from the water and God declares it good, but he's only halfway there. He speaks and plants rise from the soil, great forests, fields of grass, bushes and shrubs, and finally the formless, what was formless in verse 2 now, has formed. The shape has, uh, the shapeless has taken shape. The canvas has been covered. There is now a wash of colour and outline of silhouette and shadow. And God declares it good, day three ends, evening and morning. He's halfway there. Uh, Now God comes back and begins to fill in the details. There is form and shape, but it's empty. Now's the time to fill up the emptiness. Time to get out the fine brushes and put away the broad sweep. 
so day four he speaks and sun, moon and stars blaze across the sky and fill up the day and the night with detail and God declares it good and day four ends evening and morning. Day five he speaks and the oceans and the skies get filled up. They teem with life. What is empty is now full. Fresh water and salt water, mammals and fish, squid and crabs, seed-eating seed-eating birds as well as birds of prey, huge whales, tiny honey eaters, the vacant becomes full to overflowing and God declares it good, day five ends, evening and morning. Day six, the painting is approaching, finishing. God moves onto the land. There's soil and trees, there's mountains and valleys, deserts and forests, but they're blank. So God speaks and fills them in with animals, running and jumping and waddling and crawling animals, digging and climbing and wriggling animals, animals that hunt and chase and animals that hide and are chased, animals that wander, animals that set up homes, animals that live in herds and those that live alone. And God saw that it was good. A world of order and design from the God of order and design. A world of variety and colour and complexity. But a world where each part fits together perfectly the way it's designed, everything in balance and harmony. From the enormous patterns of the Milky Way the swirls and splashes of stars and constellations across millions of light years to the tiny, intricate, unique designs of a snowflake. From the balance of mass and gravitational attraction that keeps the Earth orbiting at just the right distance from the Sun so that water remains liquid and life is possible to the balance of mass and energy and charge that keeps every atom stable, that keeps negative electrons orbiting a positive nucleus without ever collapsing into it, thus making matter possible. From the macro to the micro, precision and detail and fine planning. But God's not finished yet. He has one last piece of creating to do the pinnacle of his creation, a creature like himself, bearing his likeness, one to care and cultivate and rule under him, who can enjoy his creation with him. He creates humanity, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock, the earth, and all the creatures that move. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule. Mankind, the only creature with a touch of divinity, made in God's likeness, made to recognise him, to comprehend eternity, to appreciate and enjoy creation like God himself but also with a task made for a purpose, to care for creation, to rule. More on that next time. And now with the last piece of the picture in place, God stands back from his painting and he holds up the thumb and he sizes it all up and he declares, 
very good. It's a picture of perfection, of God and his people and his world in perfect harmony and unity and relationship. It's a picture that's summed up in the first box in the Two Ways to Live presentation. God, the loving ruler of the world, he made the world, he made us rulers of the world under him. That little paragraph answers the big questions of life. Who's God? Who am I? Why am I here? And so as we come to the end of the first chapter of the Bible, we realise we have purpose. The world was designed and created for a reason. We are significant and precious in God's plan. There's an explanation for why we feel love and justice, loyalty, loneliness, beauty. There's an explanation here for, for why we feel the rightness of human beings having certain rights because we're made in God's image like no other creature. We're made for relationships. We're made for God and we have a job to be getting on with. We were made for dominion. We were made to care and to nurture and to rule and to use and enjoy God's world. And yet for all of of the beauty and perfection, that's not it, is it? That's not all there is. Uh, For all man's purpose and significance and identity that we see in these first six days, he's made for something more. Uh, For all creation's completeness and complexity, that's not the goal. Because there's one more day. Creation is finished, but the week is not finished. Chapter 2 verse 1 continues. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished all the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested. The pattern doesn't finish at six, but seven. The culmination of creation is not man or even the complete creation package with man as God's second in command. That's all very good. The the, the finale of God's work is rest. That's the target. Rest that is set apart from the rest of the work of creating. It's rest that acknowledges that creation is complete, that there is nothing else to add that creation isn't half-baked or half-finished. Rest is the stamp of finished and complete. It's the certificate of occupancy. And it's also rest which is more than simply stopping. Rest is about actively rejoicing in the creation. It's for the time for God himself to step back and to enjoy, to participate and enjoy. And as we keep reading through scripture, we see that God's rest becomes a pattern for our rest, a time to pause and to rest, but also to enjoy, to enjoy the creation and enjoy the creator, to participate with God in his rest. I wonder if you notice something missing from that day seven there for each of the other six days. There is no final, 
There was evening, there was morning, the seventh day. I think because day seven continues. We live in day seven. God calls us to participate in his rest of enjoying him and his creation. I think there's probably one other thing we can say about God's rest. Uh, This rest that uh, we're now in is pointing towards something beyond this world. Creation uh, is there in the first six days but, but God's goal is something beyond creation because as scripture unfolds we learn something else that God has another rest planned, a rest that's beyond this creation. Hebrews chapter 4 promises God's eternal rest, something that's still before God's people, something that none of us have fully entered yet, something to look forward to and to persevere for. Hebrews 4.1 says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of, us, none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And then down in verse 9 it continues, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. That says that God has prepared a rest that that begins now as we grow in our relationship with him as we're connected to him through Jesus, as we learn to trust him and enjoy him and obey him and rely on him. That's a rest that we begin now, but it's also a rest which will only ever be fully realised into eternity in not this creation but in a new creation, a perfect and complete and ultimate and intimate and eternal and uncorruptible creation. And so as we experience a little of God's plan of rest now, that's a comfort as we live with the frustration of a world which is no longer God's perfect world. That's a comfort and a hope as we live with the pain and the suffering and the death and the frustration and and we wonder, what is God doing? And even as we recognise those things in ourselves, Because as perfect as it all was in the beginning, that's not the world we're living in today and and so our hope is for another world with another rest or a more complete rest. And and so we wait as we rest and we hope as we rest. And as we do it, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. He's the key to our real rest. He's the one who will lead us into his true rest. Let's keep our eyes on the one who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's make an effort, make every effort to enter that rest, to rejoice in our Saviour, our Creator, to rejoice in his creation, to live as his people with purpose and joy and love, people who know who we are, who know why we're here and who also know where we're headed. Let's pray.